Hey there, welcome to Sauce Unbound, brought to you by Sauce Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Sophie, co-founder and CEO of Lisa, a suite of shoppertainment software solutions. Uh, working with some of the biggest brands in retail, they're on a mission to transform the industry and make shopping fun. Thank <laughs> you, <laughs> and welcome to the show. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> sure. No, when I was reading about what you're doing, I was like, okay, uh, like this is going to solve so many problems for me because I honestly hate shopping. I think it's just so, oh, it's so taxing. Like you have to have so much time in your hands and like you have to go to, from, like from shop to the shop, uh, like just, just choosing uh, different stuff and for me, like, I would really like to see how it looks on somebody, not just on, you know, hanging in the shop. I want to see, you know, how you pair it and where you take it and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's just, and what you're doing is just like helping people like me kind of visualize that. So thank you for doing this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how did you get there in the first place? Where, um, let's maybe start with your background and the inspiration mm -hmm. behind the product. Yeah, sure. So I used to work in big box retail for 10 years uh, at Metro Group. And the last sort of four years uh, of those 10 years, I discovered my love for working at the intersection of technology and customer experience design. And what I found is that there tend to be in these big retail groups, right, there tend to be two teams, there tends to be the tech team, which, you know, knows a lot about new technologies and all the stuff they can enable, but not necessarily so much about customers and how they want to really actually experience things. And then on the other hand, you have marketers who are brilliant at understanding customers, but are not necessarily super tech savvy. And then there tends to be a difficulty in translating the one to the other. So if you have, I don't want to generalize, but sometimes, you know, when it's a big, strong tech team designing products and solutions, then they tend to be a little bit maybe over teched and um, not that easy to use, for example, or they don't actually solve the real problem that a consumer has. And on the other hand, the marketers, again, are very knowledgeable about the consumers and designing new experiences for them, but might be shy away a little bit from using tech to solve some of those problems because they might not feel like they understand them really well. So that was the one sort of problem that I saw. And the other part of this is that I think even 12 years ago when I did my uh, MBA on the weekends next to my full-time job, my partner and I, and uh, now husband and I, and co-founder and I, <laughs> he's an engineer originally, but he grew up in a family, uh, a retail family as well. And, you know, he was helping out his parents in their retail business. And so we were brainstorming all the time about how the future, especially of digital shopping, let's say, uh, would look. And we had this hypothesis that similarly to, let's say, 20 years ago, where suddenly everybody said, okay, I need to make the in-shop experience an actual experience. I need to differentiate. I need to do something special or people will not come to my shop anymore. And that's exactly what happened. Everybody that didn't do that is probably not around anymore. The same tipping point will come in the e-commerce environment. That's what our central hypothesis has been for 12 years now. We said... There will come a point where all brands are online, everybody's selling everything everywhere, but the online experience is very convenience and transaction focused, right? You know, you, you, you're searching for a specific product, you find it, you add it to basket, you buy, and that's it. It's like completely transactional. 
or you go to social media for a bit of inspiration. But in between, there's very little. And the translation between the one to the other is not particularly good. So we said that there will come a point where there's so many brands online, totally overcrowded. Everybody's fighting for like customer eyeballs. So then again, experience will be the key differentiator. And that's literally what we set out to do is to, in a first step, actually, we had a different business where we were experimenting in a D2C environment. So we had an online shop for kids fashion where we experimented with live shopping. So I was selling kids clothes through live streams to people all over the world through FaceTime, you know, just as an experiment. We had shoppable catalogs. This is like seven years ago. And then we realized two things. A, we're not ideally suited to build a D2C business. <laughs> and B, some of these elements are working really well. And there are just no software solutions out there that easily allow brands to bring these kind of experiences to their shops and just plug them in no matter the online platform they're working on. So that's how Lisa was born. And uh, Lisa was a project within our old business. And then we pulled the plug on the online shop and we said, we found something here we're onto something. We're much better suited <laughs> to build a SaaS business, which helps retailers and brands, you know, solve problems in their e-commerce environment. And that's how Lisa was born. That's what we set out to do. Wow, that's fascinating. Super. Thank you for, for telling this story. But uh, as far as, you know, uh, I can see, and when we first talked, I had a very different idea of, of what you're building, right? So when you told me about social commerce, shoppable stories, the first thing that kind of popped up in my mind was like, okay, so it's like you go to Instagram and you see an influencer that you like trying out, you know, some clothes and you like it and you instantly can, you know, click, get a link to, I don't know, a skirt that you liked and you go to the shop uh, with that link and you can buy it there. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's very convenient. But then you started explaining to me that it's, it's, well, it's one part of retail that exists, right? Or could exist, but what you're doing is a little bit different. So I guess there is still an element of like educating customers, educating consumers. So could you talk maybe a little bit about that? So like maybe give an overview of how different Lisa is to like what I built in my mind at first and yeah, how easy or how difficult it is to, to educate others on what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you're not wrong. If people think about social commerce, which is the space we're operating in, they think of buying things on social media. Right. And that is one part of it. Yeah. But uh, as to your point, it is only a very small part of it. So what we at Lisa do is we basically bring the social media experience to e-commerce websites. So if the what you have in mind is like commerce features coming to social media, that is right. one part of social commerce. Then there's the other part of where the social entertainment basically comes to e-commerce. So where you plug in features like shoppable stories, shoppable videos, shoppable live streams, which Lisa all offers out of one platform, actually. So really what you're doing using the Lisa Zass uh, tech stack is your social media fine, your e-commerce. And the brands that come to us are typically brands and retailers that say, okay, you know what? It's great that for my followers on socials, I have this offer, but actually not all my clients follow me on socials. Like 70% of them you know, actually yeah. like coming to my shop and actually like engaging with me directly, you know, do they not deserve a great and fun discovery experience too? So that is literally what we enable is 
to just literally with one line of code inject uh, things like shoppable stories, maybe even bring your social content onto your website, make it discoverable, make it shoppable there. And shoppable stories is to your point, is a really fun experience, works a lot like on socials. And what it does is it instantly lifts dwell times for brands up to 25%. And what we're seeing is that it's lifting AOVs up to 30%, which is insane, right? I mean, if you can just plug something in, which takes like three minutes to set up and you're just repurposing content you already have on socials, making it shoppable, and it has that impact on, you know, how people spend time in your online shop and what purchase decisions they make, that's incredible. And the more you move along the sort of maturity of content creation, so if you then go to video shopping and then even live stream shopping, you know, live stream shopping has conversion rates of up to 37%. Uh, it's just incredible. We see social sharing rates of up to 43%. So that means that people that are in a live show on a brand's website, uh, if you just say, hey, bring in a friend without giving any incentive or discount or whatever, we see up to 43% of the audience doing that because they love the experience so much. So that is, yeah, the core of, of what Lisa is in terms of, yeah, enabling these kind of experiences on brands and retailers' websites today. But I think what I also alluded to is our big picture vision of what we're working towards. So what we're working towards is making Lisa a 360-degree social commerce platform. So as a brand or retailer or publisher even, any social commerce activities that you're doing, whether it is on your own site or whether it is on a social platform, whether it needs affiliate tracking, whether it leads to your own e-commerce or outside to a different e-commerce, that all of those activities are manageable through one single platform. Quite a lot of that is already there in terms of capability. So we can co-stream, for example, if you're live on your own website, you can co-stream to Instagram and TikTok. Uh, you can manage all your creators centrally. So a lot of that is already there. And now we're really building out also our network of APIs to create that, you know, completely seamless front end experience and give a brand just that one console that it needs to manage all its social commerce out of one place. Right. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> Let, let's talk a little bit about your, your customers. Discuss the way that uh, you went to market, because I know that you started with kind of uh, unconventional contracts, right? Your first was L'Oreal, if I'm not mistaken. So that's, you know, a, a huge company. So how did you go there? What is the kind of uh, the fundamental thing that you've built into the platform, into the business that allowed you to go after these huge customers right away? And is it changing in any way right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, mind you, when we first started building this, uh, it was like 2018, MVPing, 2019, first, you know, paying clients. And we were lucky enough to be chosen to join the Founders Factory Accelerator in London as part of their beauty stream, which is sponsored by L'Oreal. And so we got to pitch to the L'Oreal, you know, senior leadership team, and they loved the idea, thankfully, and they experimented uh, basically, as soon as we had our MVP, they were one of the first, you know, clients That's to experiment great. with it. Uh, also Zalando, interestingly. So so we got, you know, some some very big brands and retailers to sign up and experiment with us early on, uh, which enabled us to learn quite quickly that potentially the bigger clients, first of all, if they think our product is good enough to do what they want to do with it, you know, why should we be shy and why should we be giving away things for free? 
if we're still at a point at building our business where nobody knew what social commerce was at the time, nobody knew what live shopping was at the time. This is five years ago, four or five years ago, right? In the space, in the investor environment, VC environment, people thought anything social commerce related had to be done on social media or it wouldn't work. The sort of the credibility of the ability of retailers to to execute something like this in their own environment and actually be successful with it. Just nobody really believed that we did because we're like retail children, basically. And we said, we don't think it's going to be only the social media platforms that drive social commerce. We think there's a huge role for brands and retailers to play in their direct relationships with customers. And so that's the bet that we set, which was different to what at the time anybody in the market believed would happen. And so because we sensed this is a hypothesis which was not necessarily shared uh, in the sort of VC community, we, we said, okay, well, then really the only option we have here is to build a business which actually brings in money paying customers really quickly. And the guys that are going to pay for this, even just to try it, is going to be the big guys. So we have to design a product from the get-go, which is good enough to work for really big brands and retailers. And I think, yeah, I mean, an advantage I had is that because I've been literally scouting startups to work with them as an innovation manager at the retailer that I worked at before, I had a very good sense of how you need to create a product and also even just in terms of pricing and create an offer to make it really easy for a big brand and retailer to say yes to it, to just go ahead and try. So that's Another reason we chose a, essentially a go-to-market strategy, which was right into the like enterprise <laughs> level, top tier one sort of brands and retailers selling into those. And what it also did is give us a steady stream of, you know, monthly recurring revenues and long-term contracts very early on, uh, which in turn, when we then did go out to raise, obviously was a big advantage that we had that in place already. So yes, it's an unusual way to start. Now only are we really in a position where we say, okay, we really nailed the enterprise solution. It's massively scalable. It can handle unlimited amounts of creators, channels, whatever. It can actually be headless. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff about our enterprise solution, which is actually unique in the world, interestingly. And we said, okay, because of also our Mac-based architecture, we have the capability, though, to slice the product down into tiny little versions of it. And actually now we have the sort of resources and the maturity of the product to really go out and offer a really sensational sort of starter package. Yeah, so only now do we really have the resources and the capabilities to offer like a starter package, which we can even go out and offer as a free trial for brands that are smaller to really experiment with these kind of experiences like shoppable stories, shoppable videos, shoppable live streams in their own online shops and see how they fare with it. Uh, so we only just six weeks ago launched this new starter package and now even a freemium, like a free trial uh, version of our product. Okay, that's super cool. So you're going, uh, the like, kind of the trend uh, recently on the podcast was going from PLG into sales motion and you kind of took a, a bit of a different approach. So you were, and I, I guess still are, right, with that, you know, enterprise kind of mindset yeah as the core of the business, but you're moving, you're adding uh, the PLG into the product. So how does it work? Did it, first of all, how did you do it, you know, personally, how did you approach it? 
you know, as, as an owner of the product? And then how did you have to kind of tweak the product and your go-to-market strategy to, you know, to go after those customers? Yeah, so absolutely. So, I mean, operating within the enterprise environment, very early days, had the advantage that if anybody spoke about live shopping and now as an extension, uh, you know, moving much more deeply into the overall social commerce capability uh, sort of toolkit, it is a lot of word of mouth in that space. So we closed, you know, and we've been working with clients like Marks and Spencer for two years now, Charlotte Tilbury for two and a half years, Avon for three years. So we got lucky in that sense that we and those a lot of those came in through our website actually because you know five years ago look for something live shopping solutions there was us and maybe you know two others so we got really great brands really early on that also spoke openly not all but some of them spoke thankfully openly about the collaboration with us and the results they were driving i remember avon did a i think a panel at nrf two years ago uh the cdo of marks and spencer last year did a presentation on the overall social commerce strategy for their in-app and mentioned us twice, you know, so things like that obviously help when you want to grow in that sort of enterprise sector. And that's, again, that's where I came from. So I knew that it's all about reputation, building credibility, building good cases, and they will talk to each other (laughs) and they will recommend you. So that's sort of how it works for us, at least in that enterprise space. Obviously, a lot of thought leadership you know, being out there, doing webinars, doing free strategy coaching sessions, things like that. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of, yeah, intensive one-on-one with very long lead times, as we know. So that's, you know, very intense, but also when, when it does turn into, you know, a trial or then a long-term contract, it's obviously very rewarding. Um, so now we then, as to your point, had to consider, okay, well, if we're now going after smaller brands, maybe the ones on Shopify, you know, how do we reach them? Because to them, if they've ever heard of us, right, they're going to have us pegged as an enterprise brand that is way too expensive for them, most likely, because that's where the brand is positioned right now. So how how do we do that? And listen, we only started, what, two months ago with this. So this is all very fresh and new to us. Uh, We are doing a lot of SDR, a lot of outbound email campaigns. And we've got to a point where we're reaching opening rates uh, on first cold emails of between 30 to 40%, which for the fact that we've That's been doing wonderful. it for eight weeks, I am incredibly proud of the team, I have to say. And yeah, we're starting to, you know, have as a result of that uh, regular, you know, calls, we're starting to set up the first trials, it's starting to work. And for this, for us, this part of the business is new. So I have so much to learn for sure. But it's, yeah, just I jump in client calls occasionally just because I really also like to just hear, uh, you know, when you're reaching a new target group, what the feedback is. And so far, it's been incredibly positive with incredibly fast also trial signups. You know, we're just onboarding a couple of brands this week, step by step, obviously, right? This is also new, new territory for a lot of these brands. But yeah, so we're actually very happy with how it's working. And yeah, let's see where it takes us, you know, in a quarter, maybe if we talk again, (laughs) who knows what I'll tell you. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. would love to, you know, do a follow up. Uh, But you also went to Web Summit, right? A huge conference. And uh, you were there on a panel talking about Mm -hmm. social commerce. So what was your feeling about like the whole trend? Are people interested? You know, is it becoming bigger? Like what's going on? Are we going to have more of that? in the coming years. 
This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com course, rewardful.com course, and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. So Web Summit was a bit like a, almost like a homecoming. It was really weird because two years ago we were, we did actually the startup competition there. My team had signed me up but didn't tell me. And then when, when I got there, you know, I went into the first round of pitching in front of 50 people and I'm like, oh, this is okay. You know, this is not too bad. And then I like, hey guys, so what happens if we win? And they're like, oh, and I'm like, come on, you know, what happens if we win? And they're like, oh, you have to go present on the big stage. I'm like the big, big stage, like 20,000 people stage. That's a mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So, but yeah, long story short, um, very good that they did that because we made it to the top three, actually. So we didn't win, but we made it to the top three, which out of 2000 startups, I think, which is unbelievable. So that was two years ago. And that obviously boosted also, you know, awareness, etc. And that sort of put, you know, live shopping, which we were mainly focused on at the time, but also social commerce in general, sort of more on the radar for sure, especially in the sort of VC environment. So that was just before our raise. So that obviously helped sensationally with that, et cetera, et cetera. So that was great. But as to your point back then, there were still a lot of question marks in people's eyes and a lot of like, okay, I think it's cool what you're doing. I think it's going to be a fun sort of, you know, gimmick for brands and retailers to test, but it's not going to fundamentally change how we discover and purchase things online. And it's not going to have a fundamental bottom line impact or share of revenue. Now, we, I got invited by Agora, which is a live streaming SDK provider, also one of our partners, uh, to join a panel that they were uh, speaking on, the CRO Tony was speaking on, and he asked me to come in on a panel, and we were at a stage fairly sort of at the back, you know, for Web Summit, the sort of <laughs> standards are fairly small stage, and I wasn't, to be honest, I, I wasn't expecting a big, in that sense, turnout, because you know the stuff that's going on at Web Summit, it's like... Being that boom, like you don't even know where to look. There's always something going on, right? Anyway, but the turnout was incredible. People were actually standing, you know, outside trying to get in, you know, so and just the feedback we got afterwards, I got approached directly by a couple of big, big uh, retailers and brands that were looking. And it's interesting, basically, the feedback I got is our CMOs and CDOs really have this on their agenda for next year people in the team saying, I don't really, honestly, I don't really know what social commerce is. Can you like help me figure this out? And so it was was interesting feedback because as to your point, okay, it's kind of on the agenda. People know they want to do it or somebody's saying, you know, from the top, the classic thing, somebody's saying we really should be doing that. And now teams are kind of like, oh, wait, wait a minute. So A, this is real, right? This is going to have real impact. But B, how do I navigate this? What are all my options? And again, that's where Lisa really comes in because we say, listen, 
anything social commerce related you want to do, whether it's on your own platform, sending traffic out to another platform, on social media, whatever, you really just need one you know, console to manage all of that and one partner to help you navigate all of that. And that's where we see us sitting. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Well, you know, uh, I always say that, but sometimes founders are afraid of, of doing things that don't scale, like going to podcasts or going to conferences. It's, you know, it's just like talking mm. to, to a few people, like what is it going to do? It's better to just, you know, be CEO, grind your numbers and, uh, you know, build a product. But I think doing the things that don't scale, like, you know, a podcast or speaking at the conference is your opportunity to, yeah, to put yourself out there to, to showcase the brand, to showcase your expertise, your vision, your mission, how you, you see changing the industry or, you know, even changing the, the, the littlest niche possible. You know, there could be people that are interested in that. And I guess that just speaks to the point uh, that we already discussed, the education of your customers and uh, the users, right? I mean, honestly, if you would ask me about live shopping five years ago, I would probably remember when I was little, there was like a live shopping channel on TV where like mm -hmm. the old ladies would <laughs> present you know, like uh, really warm vests and expect you to buy them like really cool and buy them. That was like all that I could think of. Mind if I pick up just that one example that you sure. gave because you actually yeah, yeah, sure. uh, really hit the nail on the head. One of the things I also mentioned this on the Web Summit panel, one of the main things we were talking about there is the image problem. Because we were talking about what is it going to take for live and social commerce to really explode in the West, right? And I think we're almost there. There's a lot of indicators that are showing us both the success of our brands uh, with, like like I said, you know, conversion rates up to 37%, massive AOV lifts, etc. It is becoming a significant part of their revenue, like a significant part of their revenue. Um, so I know that this is in a certain position, but, you know, does it, how does everybody else feel about it? And You've hit the nail on the head. People, when you first talk to them about it, especially the live shopping aspect of social commerce, they're like, in their heads, they're thinking QVC, you know, TV shopping. Uh, I had a conversation with somebody around Web Summit, which was very eye-opening for me. He's like, oh my God, my, my brother, when we were kids, my mom bought him a pair of shoes on one of those TV shopping channels and all the kids at school made fun of him because of it. And like, he was called... I don't know, he had some nickname that he got because of the shoes, the horrible shoes that his mom had bought him on the TV shopping channel, right? <laughs> so, but, right. yeah, it is, and you know, so, but that's the image problem. And that has two consequences. A, people think somehow live shopping is, you know, the successor of that, which it isn't. And B, if they do live shopping as a brand, they need to make it look and feel like TV shopping. So first, we have to also educate on saying, well, no, actually, live shopping is not at all supposed to look and feel like TV shopping. Uh, quite the opposite. It's supposed to be very natural, authentic, you know, approachable people, experts, but, you know, approachable and fun. It's about having fun and discovering things in a fun way together. And the education element happens sort of on the side. You know, live shopping, for example, has return rates that are 50% lower than classic online shopping. Why? Because while I'm having fun discovering something, I'm also learning a lot about a product and making a much better purchase decision. But as to your point, that's why I do like to go and to seize these opportunities to do some public speaking or educational things. Most people don't, you know, 
most people think it's just a little bit of fun on the side, but that it can have such a fundamental business impact and that it is something that really taps into also an innate need that people have when they're spending time online is underestimated so heavily. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, completely understand. Uh, and that's, I think, when, when you've got a product that has even a little bit of, you know, level of education to it is just 10 times harder to, to sell it. So I, yeah, I can only assume how difficult it is sometimes to explain that, you know, it's not what we, the, the image that we have in our heads. All right. But you mentioned that after you've built like the core of the product and you were profitable, you went after a VC round. So what was the reason for it, right? Because like you you said already, the industry is moving, right? People have the interest. It's not exactly like booming like crazy, right? So you could, I mean, I am just guessing here, uh, probably just stay profitable, you know, go after, you know, bigger brands, go to conferences and win bigger mm -hmm. contracts. So what was the reason behind raising VC funds? And yeah, I know that you're also raising planning to race. So yeah, I guess that that will be the next question because back then when you raised, it was a bit of a different story too, like different times. So let's start with the first fundraise. Yeah. So very simply put market share, right? I think, you know, in, in, in the smallest sort of unit or the, the simplest way to put it is uh, growth and market share. So Yes, the enterprise part of our business is very stable and it's growing very nicely and there's a lot of cross and upselling opportunity. Brands are very successful. You know, the, as you say, that being said, we knew we wanted to really become the one platform to govern and manage all social commerce and sort of sit in the middle of the whole ecosystem and also help build the ecosystem. So the main reason we went uh, to raise is because we said we'd rather be the people facilitating the build of the ecosystem than just being a sort of one player with one product within the ecosystem. I mean, we all know how that goes <laughs> in the long run in the Z in SaaS ecosystems, right? So that's why we went out to raise. And basically what we're building um, is like a social commerce cloud connecting everything in, in the ultimate vision. We're, connect we're sitting in the middle of social media platforms, creator platforms, affiliate platforms, e-com platforms, we're just sitting in the middle of it and facilitating the flow of data and content between all of those stakeholders in the ecosystem. And the reason you need that is also, if you look towards China, why did this grow so quickly there? It's because you have a completely open ecosystem. So what we're doing is recreating the Chinese ecosystem through APIs, essentially. And that's what we raised money for that. And because, as I said, we wanted to start being able to offer smaller versions of our product to different target groups and really put a sales machine essentially behind that. So those were the two reasons we did that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, and like I said, you raised in 2020, right? Uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, At 2021. In... <laughs> 2021. Okay. When it was still kind of easy per se to, to raise funds uh, going into next year, well, not going to be easy, I would assume, right? But probably uh, not as difficult either because you have a round already and you're profitable, you're working with the big names. So what are your expectations kind of like, is it going to be a different kind of game 
next year and yeah how you're approaching the whole process yeah so just to be clear we can be profitable with the core part of our business but obviously we went to raise to grow and develop so obviously mm -hmm. we built a different team uh, a different part of the business to grow and scale so yes we are also going to go fundraise again to keep that momentum there just to be clear how are we going to approach it and what is the intention really it's to keep again that momentum going and now that we see these first really big success cases and also real scalability happening i mean also tiktok shops uh, is a great example to showcase that this is really meaningful and not just a little side gimmick, right? So that actually does us really well. It doesn't hurt us, which many people might think it would, but because we want to sit in the middle of everything, I'm happy if TikTok shops is crushing it, that's very good for my business, right? It's not a bad thing. Uh, it's also a complementary activity to a lot of brands and retailers doing things on their own e-commerce environment. So again, right. all of this really is growing and it really is scaling. At the same time, if you look at how the market looks in terms of players coming in and going out, there is an incredible volatility in the space. So you have a lot of very, very sort of essentially very small providers that are actually agencies with a small little sort of plug in product. Uh, those are very helpful in a phase where a market is growing and there's still a lot of education going on, but those are starting to fall away or consolidate, etc. So there's a lot of consolidation happening in the space. You have a couple of SaaS providers like us that raised much more at a time where we wouldn't have felt comfortable raising that much just because we're retail, very retail focused and we I come from retail. I have pretty, I would say, good sense of how retail is going to adopt something at what rate and, you know, when it makes sense to double down and when the market is poised to to get to that point. Uh, so we're very happy with what we raised, who we raised it from and when we raised it. And we think that next year is going to see a big, big spike in social commerce. Everything is sort of set and geared towards that right now because we we're having conversations with the brands. We know what kind of budgets they have to allocate to this. There are actually proper budgets behind it now, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, that's why to keep the momentum and to really build that social commerce cloud vision out as fast as possible, we are going to go raise again next year. Perhaps one example I can give um, it's actually the first time I'm mentioning this publicly. Uh, we are going to release our API to commerce tools next week. So then any brand or retailer that is already operating their e-commerce on the commerce tools tech stack can easily add social commerce uh, entertainment elements to it because of the API that we have with commerce tools, which we're very excited by. Wonderful. Well, thank you for the announcement. I'll make sure, you know, to, to plug it in. So the timing is great for, for the launch, but, uh, yeah, there is one more thing that I wanted to kind of just take a side note. You are, yeah, you already mentioned that you're working with your partner, with your husband. So it's a family business, right? And I think only like three, four, we're here on the podcast and I always kind of try to ask because a lot of people are curious, like, how do you basically navigate <laughs> this 24 seven, right? What are the values that, you know, tr you transfer from the family to the business or vice versa? Mm -hmm. You know, do you have to be fully transparent and like kind of live the values throughout your life that you're representing at work? So how does it work for you? And uh, yeah, what are the values that you're cultivating in the team? Um, well, first of all, for us, we did, um, 
have a small business together. Our first experiment, essentially, like I mentioned, the, the DTC online shop, where not only did we do a lot of things wrong in terms of how we designed the business, etc., but you know, an element of, of that was also navigating how to work together. And also there, we did a lot of things wrong the first time around, no question. We then, though, also decided, hey, listen, if we can learn from this, right, and if we design now the Lisa business differently, anyway, it's a different business model, but just also, as you say, in terms of sort of how we work together and then in a second step, our values and how we extend those to the team, you know, let's learn from it. Let's do that. And we did. And uh, a lesson learned, for example, is very clear accountability and areas of responsibility. We each have our teams. You know, and uh, I am responsible for certain parts of the business and my co-founder and husband is responsible for other parts of the business. Um, And, you know, to trust and respect each other to make those decisions in a business environment is a different story. And um, to, to learn and navigate those different roles. And now it feels like, you know, the most natural thing in the world. But yeah, for sure, it also took some time to get it to this point. And as for the team, I always say I can only imagine that it's not easy. <laughs> it's kind of like, sometimes I wonder if it's like a kid, like if you don't get what you want from daddy, you go ask mommy. No, I'm joking. But, you know, I, I think there's a certain family element to it, as you describe, where you, whether you intend to or not, your values sort of transpire into or bleed into, you know, the company culture. So that's actually, we did some work on that quite consciously very early on. We, you know, we said that, for example, curiosity is one of our personal core values. Curiosity is one of the core values of Lisa. Uh, efficiency, interestingly, is one of the core values of the business as well, for the reasons we discussed earlier. Um, empathy is one of the core values of the business because, uh, first of all, I think, you know, and this extends mostly to, you know, empathy in terms of really understanding what our customers' challenges are and really putting ourselves in their shoes and then really designing solutions that actually, like I said at the beginning, really add value to them. So those are the core values. And um, in our hiring process, we do try to, you know, screen for that to a certain degree. Um, And we had um, a director of talent come in early this year and he did our first actual culture questionnaire within the business. We were so worried about the results. You have no idea. We're like, oh my God, we're actually going to get it all black and white, you know, black on white. We're going to, they're going to tear us apart. And oh my God, end of the, or the end result was we got 10 out of 10 NPS in terms of recommending Lisa as an employer. That's too good, right? I'm not saying, like, I cannot tell you how proud I am of that. Like it is, if you ask me, like, what am I most proud of? It is a hundred percent that it is the culture you know, and the team we've built and the culture within the company 100% at the same time, it also told us, okay, we need to to scale the business and the team further. We need to step away a little bit from this family feeling and really bring more structure and processes and also accountability into things. So that's something we've been working on very hard this year is to really, you know, work on that. And if as a result, the NPS, you know, goes down to eight to nine, I'm still very happy but yeah, that's what the goal is. <laughs> right. Okay. That's wonderful. I mean, congratulations. And, you know, my next question is going to be the biggest win and the biggest failure. So do we keep your previous answer as the biggest okay. win or is there something else that you want to add? No, I think by far as a founder, I mean, but that's also a very personal perception thing. Any business you build is essentially the team you build. And you know, yes, for sure, we're building this business because we fundamentally want to disrupt the retail space. 
and how people experience things in a digital environment. That's what is, you know, the passion behind what we're doing. But in terms of biggest win, it is absolutely the team you're building and the culture you have and the, you know, the people you get to work with every day. And I'm serious, you know, and the conversations you get to have every day, if you're lucky to, you know, be in a great environment, then even the really hard stuff is a lot less hard because you're sharing it with others, right? And you don't feel even as a founder, like you're completely alone with all of it. So that definitely is the biggest win. Of course, there are also wins like we've been working with Zalando again. So we did a trial with them very early, like two and a half years ago, you know, with mixed results, it was very early. Like some indicators were really good, but also it was very early to be, you know, testing stuff. I think it was even three years ago. And now since quite a while, we've been working with them again, right, on our enterprise product. They came back and they said, okay, we're ready to scale this now. We, you know, we're really happy with working together with you guys then. Let's scale this. Let's do this, right? So that that feels like a big win because it's like, hey, it, of course, because it's Zalando as well, but almost more because it's like, hey, they were happy to work with us and they were impressed by the team and they came back. You know what I mean? Like they, they yeah. stayed and they came back. So that, yeah, would be two of my, that and, oh God, too many now. But we recently did an event in London and it was the first time where we asked one of our clients to come and present work, like a case essentially do a panel on how they work with us and we actually had Marks and Spencer people from the team come and talk to our audience about how they are working with us with these us successfully how we're enabling a really cool use case for them and I remember sitting there thinking okay this I am incredibly proud of like clients actually coming and speaking on your behalf to other potential clients about how well it's going with you that I was also very proud of. Super. That's amazing. I almost don't want to ask about failure, but that's the real story. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the biggest, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, the biggest failure actually, honestly, is, is the uh, creation story of Lisa, right? So having that online shop, having to pull the plug on it, having to let people go, having to be honest to ourselves that a D2C business model in, it was a kid's fashion space. It's just not something we're going to you know, scale properly, we're not going to win at, was really hard, right? No question. And interestingly, we decided to get married after that, because we figured, okay, if we can survive that, and if we can go through sorting out the pieces, and like getting the good stuff out of the ashes afterwards, you know, then we're, if we manage that, then we're in a good position. But it was really hard, for sure. And, you know, acknowledging that failure and talking to people about it and being public about it was very hard for sure. Wow, that, that's really interesting. But, you know, you definitely learned from it. So it's a failure, but, you know, the one that you could turn around. Uh, all right. And then the last question is about a hack, right? So it can be anything, again, maybe something unconventional that, you know, not necessarily will work for anyone else. But maybe about, you know, nailing those huge contracts, doing the partnerships, really building relationships or building the team, anything that you're willing to share? It's ironic because we are built remote first and we built our business during a digital, completely digital time. But as to your point before, yes. I also regularly within the team, when we have the budget discussions, et cetera, et cetera, it's always a discussion of where do we go? How much do we travel? How much like face-to-face -face time do we put in? And I know our sector, at least the retail space is still a very human led business. And 
it sounds maybe like a really weird hack, but I remember once I was on a, a call with a potential client and they were saying, oh yeah, so we're doing this meeting, everyone's coming in. And basically they wanted us to pitch, you know, and I'm like, yeah, okay. And then he said, well, like, just again, we're all coming in. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I think what he's telling me is he's asking me, you know, whether I want to come or we want to come and pitch in person. And honestly, for that enterprise client potential, really, I know it's not necessarily a hack, but honestly, I really think going in person makes a massive difference and I wouldn't underestimate it. Yeah. Also, just being approachable to those people afterwards. Uh, they still, I still have questions. I still have some prospects like WhatsApping me <laughs> with questions, right, in the sort of months and months of lead cycle, you know, lead times and sales cycles that we have with these clients. So I really think building personal relationships is actually for this space really, really important. And it is the long shot game. A personal relationship I built two years ago is now turning into a client. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not, I mean, maybe now after, you know, after COVID, after all of us going fully remote, maybe it's, it's a hack already because, you know, we're not used to it anymore, but I really loved, because we, we talk about it uh, at SaaS Group as well, right? Because we, we had our retreat and, and after mm -hmm. that, you know, for, for a month we were riding this excitement wave because we all saw each other and we all kind of learned mm -hmm. how we look like, not just on the screen. And I really loved how uh, Daniel, our head of product, put it. It's like having a, a balance account, right? When you see somebody, you get so excited and so kind of like familiar with the person and uh, you're willing to, to work with them and you want to kind of do something extra for them. And then you go away and it's kind of what, what you're paying after when you're remote. And the trick there is to just not spend all that you know balance before it's too late yeah that's but... true it's a momentum thing right it's an it's mm -hmm. an energy thing and as you say it's we for example we had our team retreat on the farm <laughs> that my mom grew up on which was kind of personal but in the best possible way and also the energy that came off the back of that and as you say you're just willing to go that extra mile for a colleague um, that asks for your help. First of all, I think asking for help is much easier when you've met someone in person. And yeah. second of all, giving that help is something that is a lot easier or harder to say no to, which is not, not to say you always need to help everyone with everything. I think we know that that's also very important in a business, but just that barrier, as you say, is sort of eroded. It's just so much easier to be like, hey, can you help me with this? I'm really struggling because you have that personal connection. But I agree, you don't need to see each other every day for that kind of relationship to, you know, to shape, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah, true. All right. Well, thank you so much. I've been enjoying this conversation immensely. I think what you're building is is pretty great. I mean, I would love to eventually try it and see if maybe it will help me not spend, <laughs> you know, hours and hours trying to, to find something to wear. But um <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for your story. Happy to do a follow up after you raise another round. And you know, after you have some learnings to share from your PLG journey. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for having me. Anytime. And take care. <laughs> that was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders, and if you're one, 
reach out to me directly at anna at sas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.